0: For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning is The Potter's Freedom. This is part two, Romans chapter nine, verses 19 through 24. In particular, this morning, verses 22 and 23. In the salvation of undeserving sinners, God acts freely for the glory of his name. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, Moses asked God, Lord, please show me your glory. God replied, Moses, I'm going to show you my glory. I will make all my goodness pass before you. I'm not, I'm going to proclaim the name of the Lord before you that infinite goodness, the proclamation of his own name, his own character, his own essence. That is the essential nature of God's glory. And the glory of his essential nature was then expressed to Moses in this. I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. God's glory expressed to Moses, God's goodness expressed to Moses expressed, if you will, in the framework of his sovereign freedom in bestowing grace on and mercy upon undeserving sinners. I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion in all the realms of created wonder. Right in a universe filled with numberless marvels in the vault of heaven where myriads of angels praise his name God's glory is most spectacularly manifest in the free and sovereign grace and mercy that he lavishly bestows on undeserving sinners that is a most glorious Essential to that glory, which is entirely his, essential to that glory, which he has, and that he has said he will not share with another, essential to that glory is the sovereign freedom with which God acts to show mercy and to show grace to undeserving sinners. He's not constrained by any work of man as though he owed you anything. (laughs) He's not restrained by any determining factor outside of himself as though man could in any way influence his decisions or influence, his own free determination, his absolute, uncompromised, unwavering, sovereign freedom is of the very essence of what it means to be God. He is the great I am. That is his name. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He has mercy on whomever he wills to have mercy. And he has compassion on whomever he wills to have compassion. All glory, honor, and praise to God. Amen. The infinite perfections of God manifest an infinite and transcendent and incomprehensible glory. His own glory is above all. All as that which is most to be valued. In all of known creation. In all of known, this known universe. His glory is above all of infinite worth. Such that when God acts for the glory of his own name, it is the very definition of righteousness. God always acts for the glory of his own name. God always upholds that which is most valuable. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the what? The glory of God. Sin itself defined by the treasonous betrayal that it is against God's own glory. And in that betrayal, our actions are the very definition of unrighteous. But in acting for the glory of his own name, in upholding that which is most precious, most Glorious, God always acts in righteousness. And that which most gloriously tends to his own righteousness is the free and sovereign determination out of the mass of sinful humanity to elect in love and then freely justify a people for his own name through the sacrifice of his own beloved Son, and to justify them freely as a gift of his grace through the means of faith alone apart from any works of our own, such that our redemption would be to the praise of the glory of his grace alone. By dying in our place, the righteousness of God is vindicated. That righteousness consisting of upholding that in the death of his own son, that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ, that righteousness consists of upholding that which is of infinite worth, namely his own glory. This plan of salvation had to come about in this way. God has determined it for the glory of his own name. God determined it to uphold and to vindicate that which is most worthy, that which is most of infinite value. Verse 18, Therefore, For the glory of his own name, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens without any respect to who you are or what you've done. That's what tends to his glory, not yours. Do you see? Fallen men often and often vigorously oppose this notion of God's sovereign freedom. They charge God with unrighteousness when they say it's not fair. That's what they're doing. When they say it's not fair, they charge God with unrighteousness. That's verse 14. Or they charge God with unrighteousness by saying that he would be unrighteous to hold us responsible for our sin then. That's verse 19. And these are often the objections of insolent and arrogant men who presume to sit in judgment upon God and his ways. So Paul rebukes that insolent presumption. He rebukes that arrogance in verse 20. But indeed, O man... Who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Who do you think you are? You scrap of clay, (laughs) right? God is sovereign. God is free and God is righteous in his unconditional election of fallen men to salvation through his son. God is also free. God is also sovereign and God is also righteous In his determination, his own determination to leave others to the just recompense due their sin, even to judicially harden them in a judgment against them for their sin. God gives them over, as Paul said in Romans chapter 1, God gives them over to uncleanness, God gives them over to a debased mind, God gives them over to that which is unfitting. God gives them over to the very thing that they want, they want their sin. And in that, God acts in righteousness. He is righteous. Verse 21, Does not the potter have power over the clay, over the same lump of fallen humanity, to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? In other words, to fashion them, does not the potter have power or authority or right over the clay to fashion them for uses that righteously terminate upon their honor or to fashion them for uses that righteously terminate upon their ultimate and righteous dishonor to show mercy to the one, to the praise of God's glorious grace and to judicially, judicially harden the other as a judgment against him to the praise of God's justice to withhold from one, that which he deserves and to give to the other exactly what he deserves. God is not unrighteous to do that. God is not unfair when he does that. Does not the potter have sovereign freedom to do as he pleases with those he has created? Of course he does. Of course he does. In doing so, God acts freely, sovereignly. For his own glory. He upholds the glory of his own name. And in that, he is entirely righteous. When someone says God's sovereign election isn't fair, he is charging God with unrighteousness. When the sole authority for determining the nature of the vessel belongs to the potter alone. God has absolute and sovereign Uncompromising control over the destinies of individual men. Let that sink in for a moment. God has absolute sovereign control over the destinies of individual fallen men. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. That's Paul's point in the text. And it is often Uh, A difficult pill to swallow for prideful man, (laughs) self-righteous man, people who want to have a say in things. It's very difficult for some people to, to take at face value, but this is the clear, the clear proclamation, the clear revelation of God's own word. This is what Paul is saying in the text. And we must submit ourselves to the word of God, right? Humble ourselves before the word of God. And when you do, There's blessedness behind that understanding. Everything else is such a prideful, self-righteous error. And it tends to diminish the glory of God or diminish his worship. This is the revelation that God has given us in his word. Now, at this point in our text, Paul now offers an explanation to support that premise. Okay? He's going to do so by asking a rhetorical question in verses 22 through 24. And that rhetorical question expects an obvious answer. He's then going to follow up that rhetorical question with scriptural evidence for the obvious answer in verses 25 through 29. He's going to prove it. Okay? We're going to see in that proposition a proof then from the Old Testament. Now first, consider with me Paul's proposition beginning in verse 22. What if God, wanting to show his wrath... Wanting to make his power known endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And so that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles in the question itself. Think with me now in the question itself, Paul reveals the God's free and sovereign purpose in making from one lump of fallen humanity both vessels for honor and vessels for dishonor, Dr. Murray, if God, in the exercise of his sovereign right, makes some vessels of wrath and other vessels of mercy, what have we to say about it? That 's a rhetorical question. Also, we have nothing to say about it. we have nothing to say about it, right? Who are you to reply against God? God in the free and sovereign exercise of his will. He purposes to make one from one lump of fallen humanity, both vessels for honor and vessels for dishonor. Paul is essentially repeating the point of the question in verse 20 and explaining it further. Okay. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? An example of what Paul is doing here with his question in verse 22 is essentially this. Why are you arguing with me about such and such? Did you not think that I such and such? Okay, you can fill in the blank such and such with your own example, right? Examples abound. Why are you arguing with me about such and such? Didn't you know that I such and such, right? Why are you arguing with me about getting a kitten? Do you not know that they grow into cats? Okay, right? You see, the, what is Paul doing? Paul is asking a rhetorical question, and what's the question that he's, what's the reason for the question? He's making a point, okay? He's making a point. He's making us think, and he's, make, he's making a point, okay? Two questions here, making an ultimate point. Two questions, ultimately not asking for an answer. The two questions are being asked for an effect. They're being asked to get you thinking. Paul begins his question in verse 22 with a what if. What if. Now we're used to hearing what if preceding a hypothetical question. Okay? What if hypothesis, right? But Paul is not presenting, presenting a hypothesis here. Paul's making a point. This is not a hypothesis. Paul is asking a rhetorical question again to get you thinking and to help you. And I understand what Paul is thinking, the point that he's just made before we we're done with our text. Paul is going to answer the question by referring to God's plans and purposes in redemptive history. And he's going to prove the point that he's making at this point. Paul's purpose is to make us think. Does not Paul have the right to use a rhetorical question to ask, to make his point? See what I just did there. What if Paul proves the point by referencing the old Testament, two questions to make a point, right? Paul is not presenting a hypothetical proposition or a hypothesis. So then what is the point that Paul is making? What is the proposition that Paul is raising? What is the conclusion that he's leading us to? This is it. God Has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That's the point of the two rhetorical questions. I'm going to show you how in just a moment. God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Why has God done this? There are two clauses attached to that point. That each say something about God's purpose for enduring vessels of wrath. Two clauses. One, he wants to show his wrath and to make his power known. It's one purpose clause. He wants to show his wrath and to make his power known. Two, he endures them so that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Do you see that in verses 22 to 24, right? Take a look at the text. The primary clause, God has endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He does that because God wants, he desires to make his wrath known, to make his power known. Secondly, he does that so that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. If you structure the text, that's the way it presents itself, okay? Now, notice with me, that language in verses 22 through 24, 22 and 23, is parallel to Paul's statement In verse 21, vessels of honor, verse 21, vessels of dishonor correspond to vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. In other words, vessels of wrath, vessels of mercy explain what it is to be a vessel of honor or a vessel of dishonor, okay? The latter helps us to understand the former. In the former, verse 21, the master potter has power, authority, right over the clay to fashion the clay as he pleases. Some he fashions for use that terminate upon their honor. Others he fashions for use that terminates upon their dishonor. In the very next verse, verse 22, those terms are more fully explained. There's some who want to separate these and say that Paul doesn't mean what Paul is saying in these verses. Okay. Very next verse, verse 22, Paul more fully explains what he meant in Verse 21. The vessels fashioned for use that terminates upon their honor are those vessels of mercy, which God has prepared beforehand for glory. Do you see the connection between the two? Okay. The vessels fashioned for use that terminates upon their dishonor, verse 21, are those vessels of wrath, which God prepared beforehand for destruction. Verse 22. In both cases, these vessels have been fashioned by the hand of the potter from the same lump of fallen and undeserving humanity. And they've been fashioned by the hand of the potter to serve his purposes, to serve the glory of his own name, either the glory of his justice or the glory of his grace, but all to the glory of God. Now, what are then the purposes of God for these vessels? What purpose? And in this, Paul Paul gives us, if you will, a glimpse behind the curtain into that hidden counsel of God so that we can know, we can understand God's own purpose, his own decretive, not his preceptive will, but his decretive will for the vessels of wrath and for the vessels of mercy. What are God's purposes for these vessels? Well, the Lord could have used the imagery of a statue, couldn't he? A sculptor fashioning an honorable statue or a sculptor fashioning a dishonorable statue. He could have used the imagery of a carpenter or an artisan or an artist, but he doesn't use that imagery. He uses the imagery of a vessel, the potter forming a vessel. A vessel is something made for the express purpose of holding or containing In this case, the potter fastens a vessel that is a receptacle or repository of his mercy. And he fashions a vessel that is a receptacle or repository of his wrath. Paul says of the wicked in Romans chapter two, verse five, that they are treasuring up. They are storing up for themselves wrath in the day of wrath. They are a repository for God's wrath wrath. They are a vessel, if you will, of wrath. They're storing up for themselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Romans chapter two, verse five. In other words, they are a vessel for wrath. And the purpose of that vessel is to hold or contain as a repository of wrath. They're storing up or treasuring up for themselves wrath to be revealed in the great day of wrath in the day of doom. Isaiah says, where God will reveal the glory of his justice and their righteous condemnation. Notice Paul's parallel in chapter two continues. He says there eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality on the one side, vessels of mercy. But on the other side, those who are self-seeking do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness they are storing up for themselves indignation and wrath. Verse nine, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory on the other side, vessels of mercy, but glory, honor and peace to everyone who works what is good as a fruit of his mercy and grace. We're storing up as it were glory, right? The tribulation, the suffering of this Present age, not worthy to be described, not worthy to be compared to that glory, which is amassing to our account in the next age, right? They are amassing for themselves, mercy and grace to the Jew first, also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Two groups, vessels of dishonor, vessels of wrath, treasuring up for themselves wrath for the day of wrath, whom he wills, he hardens, right? And on the other side, Vessels of honor, vessels of mercy, treasuring up for themselves glory and honor because on whom he wills, he shows mercy. In Romans 9, Paul Paul speaks of the potter making vessels and that for the purpose of storing wrath or storing up mercy. They are repositories, if you will, of wrath or mercy. Verse 22 The vessel fashioned to store up his wrath is storing up wrath to make God's power known. That's the purpose for which he is storing up wrath. Verse 23, the vessel fashioned to store up his mercy is storing up his mercy to make the riches of his glory known. That is the purpose for which he is storing up mercy. Again, in the language of Paul from the text The determination of God, as it pertains to the clay, is made without respect, made without any respect given to any natural distinction between them. Before they were born, before they had done anything good or evil, the determination is entirely free and sovereign, and it is the will of the potter. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. So then, God is free And God is sovereign in making vessels as he pleases. They all deserve wrath. Every one of them is born as it were a vessel of wrath. However, he fashions some as repositories of his wrath. And he fashions others as repositories of his mercy. Which one is entirely and unconditionally the determination of the potter? It's what... Paul is communicating clearly in the text. Okay. Now consider with me the vessels of wrath, the vessels of wrath. Verse 22. What if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now remember Paul's point. Paul's point is this. God has endured with much patient, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And it is with this statement that Paul emphasizes as it were god's extraordinary patience his extraordinary forbearance god is astonishingly patient literally in the text he bears them he puts up with there's really no other way to say that right he puts up with them with tremendous forbearance the, pic, the picture really is one of god in a tremendous demonstration of restraint In a tremendous demonstration of power, holding back the overwhelming flood of his vengeance. That's the picture. God in power, holding back a great flood of his wrath. The great flood of his judgment. Righteous wrath, a righteous judgment. The flood straining to be released. And God holds it back. God would be just and righteous to release it. To consume them in an instant in the furnace of his wrath. But instead, instead, God bears long. He puts up with them, puts up with us with great forbearance, with extraordinary patience before bringing sinners to their full and final judgment. God puts up, okay? God does not dispense with the punishment that they deserve. They're going to be punished. God is not slack concerning his promise of judgment upon the wicked. Rather, God withholds his wrath. God withholds that judgment in pursuit of other purposes. God temporarily postpones his righteous retribution in pursuit of other purposes. The exercise of his sovereignty in that is not arbitrary. He has other purposes in mind. There is a pur- purpose that governs the exercise of God's sovereign will. Although God is long suffering, although God bears along with them, there are vessels of wrath prepared by the potter for destruction. They're being prepared for their ultimate judgment. The word for prepared there carries the sense of making them ready, making them suitable. In our context, it refers to the potter making them ready, making them suitable. And that for the eternal display of God's wrath and God's power. What if God wanting to display more vividly, more gloriously, if you will, his wrath and to make a display more gloriously, more vividly of his power Endure the vessels of wrath prepared beforehand for destruction, right? Notice the word for prepared in verse 22 is passive. They are being prepared, which means they are not the agency of their being made vessels of wrath. There is an agency behind that, and God is the agent. Okay, this is what you call a divine passive, if you will. They are being prepared. They are being made ready. It corresponds with verse 23, where God himself prepares vessels for mercy in the same way. God is the one who exercises great patience in preparing them with long suffering, with great patience, preparing them for their ultimate judgment, their destruction. In other words, vessels of wrath are not ultimately preparing themselves I say ultimately because there is a sense in which they are storing up wrath for themselves. There is a point or a case to be made for the responsibility of man. You are responsible for your sin against God, but that's not Paul's point in this passage. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is to exemplify, if you will, the ultimate and sovereign free will and determination of God, okay? Paul's point in the passage is God's free and sovereign, unconditional election, or God's free and sovereign, unconditional reprobation in the, de- the eternal decree of his will. That reprobation is in answer to their sin, okay? Reprobation because we are not sinless. There is a condition, if you will, to reprobation, and it is the sin of man. We are born into sin. All that determination before they were born for they themselves had done any volitionally, good or evil. So that for the purpose that God's purpose, God's will, according to election, might stand. Paul is dealing with what God has purposed and with what God is doing. There is divine agency behind the passive. God hardens whom he wills. God prepares vessels of wrath prepared beforehand for destruction. Now, once again... The example of Pharaoh here is instructive. Listen, God has said to Pharaoh, think with me, Exodus chapter 9. God says to Pharaoh, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you with pestilence and cut you off from the face of the earth. God says that to Pharaoh. I could have cut you off immediately. Whenever I wanted to, God could have snapped his finger and evaporated Pharaoh and all the Egyptians. Okay. But God says, verse 16, indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up so that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. In other words, think with me now, Pharaoh's impenitence, Pharaoh's hard heart through 10 plagues wasn't in spite of God wanting to show his power. In other words, God is showing the power and Pharaoh just isn't turning isn't turning isn't turning isn't turning. It wasn't in spite of God showing his power as though it took God 10 plagues to get through to Pharaoh. No, Pharaoh's hard heart through all 10 plagues was precisely because God desired to display his power and wrath upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And then God finally destroys him in the Red Sea. And now Pharaoh, having been prepared as a vessel of wrath for destruction, Pharaoh now waits in torment for his ultimate judgment at the end of the age. It's like the Convicted criminal, sitting in jail, waiting, sitting on death row, as it were, waiting for his ultimate, the execution of his sentence. Okay. God says, so that you may know that I am the Lord and that there is none like me in all the earth. Exodus chapter 10, verse 2, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son, the mighty things I have done in Egypt and my signs, which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. The conclusion that Paul draws from the example of Pharaoh is that God hardens whom he wills. Verse 18, that judicial hardening, a judgment upon Pharaoh for his sins. And that's in keeping, that whole thing in keeping with God's fitting or preparing a vessel of wrath for destruction. God would have been just. He would have been righteous in turning Pharaoh into an ash heap before he ever got the first blasphemous word out of his mouth. But God bears long. He's patient with Pharaoh, puts up with Pharaoh, as it were. In all of his arrogant insolence, God puts up with Pharaoh. Why? He puts up with Pharaoh the same way that he puts up with bears along, forbears with all the vessels of wrath prepared beforehand for destruction. He puts up with him. Why? First, because God fellow. He desires. That's a present active participle. In a present, active, ongoing exercise of God's extraordinary forbearance, he suffers along with the vessels of wrath. He puts up with them. He does this owing to his ongoing present will and purpose and desire to display his wrath and to make his power known as he prepares them for ultimate judgment, the ultimate display of his wrath and his power. Again, Paul in Romans chapter one, verse 18, the wrath of God already presently, actively being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of men, against vessels of wrath who are being fitted Vessels of wrath being made ready for destruction. That word there for destruction does not mean annihilationism. It means ruin. To prepare them for ultimate and eternal ruin. In Romans chapter 2, Paul refers to this perdition as indignation and wrath. Tribulation and anguish. That's what awaits those vessels of wrath. Those who do not turn from their sin. Who do not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible refers to this as an eternal death. You and I think of death in terms of a physical death. There's a termination to that, right? There's a hole in the ground. There's an end, as it were, where that dead body is placed into the dirt. Your soul lives on. That's not an end. That's a doorway. That's a portal, if you will, to another realm. Death doesn't mean a termination or an end. Death here is spoken of as spiritual death. What the Bible calls second death. A death that lasts for eternity. And those vessels of wrath prepared, made ready for destruction, are being prepared, made ready for an eternal death. A death in which they'll be suited with bodies prepared to endure that torment for eternity. In just the same way that God's glorified saints will be given a body, fashioned for the purpose of experiencing with all our senses, the blessedness of being with him in eternity. There's no hope or escape from the misery of this death. Proverbs chapter 16, verse four. Listen, the Lord has made all for himself, for himself there. One Hebrew word, literally it means for his purpose, for his aim. The Lord has made all for his purpose. Yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. God endures with much patience, vessels of wrath being fitted for destruction. Why does he do that, Paul? He does this for the purpose of displaying his wrath and displaying his power that they all may know that he is the Lord and that there is none like him in all the earth. But God's forbearance with the vessels of wrath also has another purpose. It has another purpose. Verse 23, in order that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So we've considered the vessels of wrath. Consider with me the vessels of mercy. God endured the vessels of wrath with astonishing patience. First, for the purpose of displaying his wrath and power. Second, he did that for the purpose of displaying the riches of his glory to all the vessels of mercy that he himself has made ready for glory. As one said, God's wrath is put into the service of God's glory. God's wrath put into the service of his mercy. For God's ultimate decreed will is to make known the riches of his glory to the vessels of mercy. God's ultimate purpose is that, to make known the riches of his glory to the vessels of mercy. Peter said, He's long-suffering toward us, patient with us, not willing that any of us should perish, but so that all of us should come to repentance. God's purpose of delaying his wrath on those vessels of wrath at the time of the flood. right? He says, My spirit will not always strive with man. Behold, you've got 120 years. That's what you've got, he says. That's Genesis chapter 9, I believe it is. Genesis chapter 6. You've got 120 years. That's how long it was going to take Noah to build the ark. Okay? My spirit will not always strive with man. You've got 120 years. God is long-suffering, patient, forbears. He puts up with those vessels of wrath prepared beforehand for destruction by not releasing that flood he withholds that flood of his wrath and judgment for 120 years for what purpose? Noah, who is a preacher of righteousness, is building the ark. And God will, at the appointed time, release that flood of his judgment in the, in the, in that, and in that manner display the riches of his glory in the deliverance of Noah and his family. Do you see? He puts his wrath in the service of his mercy to demonstrate the greatness of his glory, the greatness of his mercy. God's purpose in delaying his wrath upon those vessels of wrath at the time of the flood was for the purpose of preparing the means, if you will, and displaying his glory in delivering the vessels of his mercy to those vessels of mercy chosen by God prepared beforehand for glory. God will make known to them the riches of his glory. Paul would put it this way in Ephesians chapter two, verse six. He raised us up together. He made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might display the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's a remarkable statement. Remarkable statement. That's what God's purpose is in doing all of this. The exceeding riches of his grace. What must that be like? His grace is infinite. The riches of his grace, infinite. And he purposes to display the exceeding riches of that grace on vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. Glory, amen? (laughs) The exceeding riches of his glory consists of all that we know of his goodness. All that we know of his infinite and measurable love. It includes everything that God pours out as a blessing upon his people and more. Listen, as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. We can't even imagine it. It is incomprehensible what God has prepared for those who love him. Those who are vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. Moses asked God, show me your glory. God responded to Moses by making all of his goodness pass before him. And by proclaiming his name, proclaiming the very essence of who he is. He is one who delights to show mercy. God intends to set on display for all to see the magnificent immeasurable riches the magnificent fullness of his goodness to us in the ages to come he's going to make the fullness of his goodness the fullness of his grace the exceeding riches of his grace to pass before us so that we might see it so that we might have it in our sense to experience the vessels the riches of his glory will be made known upon upon It's going to be lavished on you. Not just in your sight displayed before you. It's going to be lavished on you. (laughs) The vessels of mercy. Think with me. Think with me. Those riches which will be poured out on us are proportionate to God's own glory. And how glorious is he? Infinitely glorious that is a remarkable thought. God's own infinite perfections, the riches of his glory, so vast, so immeasurable, so inexhaustible. And those riches poured out on us will be proportionate to God's own glory. They are for his glory. They terminate upon his glory. God does that in order to display the glory of his own name upon vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. Now, notice once again, verse 23 these vessels do not prepare themselves for glory, but rather, he is the one who has prepared them beforehand for glory. They are prepared by God. In other words, beforehand, they're prepared in this life for the glory that awaits them in the life to come. Unlike the vessels of wrath who are prepared or judicially hardened by God for destruction. Those who will inherit eternal glory are the vessels of his mercy in mercy. God withholds from them that which they deserve. They deserve wrath in mercy. It is only because of mercy. God withholds from them that which they deserve. His purpose as it pertains to them is to make known to them to display in their sight and in their sensed experience, the riches of his glory. Incidentally, think with me now, how are the riches of his glory most gloriously displayed to the vessels of mercy? How are the riches of his glory most gloriously displayed to the vessels of mercy? by setting the richness of that glory against the black backdrop of what they deserve. And in that we glorify God. In other words, the riches of God's glory in showing mercy and God's own delight in showing mercy is magnified In all its fullness, when we see and understand the extent of that wrath from which he has delivered us, it is as though God withholds wrath. While vessels of mercy are prepared for glory and then unleashes his wrath so that the glories of the riches of his exceeding grace and his lavish mercy are displayed more in those vessels that he has chosen for himself on whom he will pour out his mercy. Do you see? He prepares vessels of wrath to fully display the full richness of his mercy and the exceeding riches of his glory. God's ultimate purpose is to show his mercy, to demonstrate his grace And he'll do that in one part by fashioning vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So much more could be said. What is our responsibility then brothers and sisters knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, what do we do? We persuade men to preach the gospel and God is gathering together his elect. You, you were once a vessel of wrath And by your own deeds, you are storing up for yourself wrath. You are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. And God showed mercy to you. Preach the gospel. Tell your family. Tell your friends. Tell your coworkers. Tell your neighbors. Preach the gospel. God delights to show mercy. The example of that is us in this room. I'll close with this question. Where and upon whom is that connection between vessels of wrath, vessels of mercy, God's display of his wrath, God's display of his mercy, God displaying the riches of his glory against the black backdrop of our sin. Where and upon whom is that connection most clearly displayed? It is most clearly displayed in the tragedy and in the triumph of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, God's grace, and God's mercy to us, undeserving, wretched sinners magnified to an infinite degree, magnified to an infinite degree against the wrath that God poured out upon his own beloved son who stood in your place and bore what you deserve. Trust in Christ. Amen. It's only in him that you're going to find mercy. It's only in him that you're going to have any hope. And for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, God delights to show mercy for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. God desires to be gracious. Verse 24. Paul then makes it clear that his concern in this is not only those elect or reprobate Jews, those Jews within the nation of Israel itself. That's where, where Paul started the beginning of this chapter. He makes it clear that his concern is not only elect or reprobate Jews, but his concern also includes those vessels of wrath and those vessels of mercy among the Gentiles as well. His concern is true Israel elect Jews and elect Gentiles from the four corners of the earth. verse 24, Even us, Gentile brother and sister, even us whom he has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Having made his point, having explained God's purpose, Paul then will reference the Old Testament for proof of these assertions in a text that we'll consider next time if the Lord allows. Where Paul there will argue for the inclusion of the Gentiles in that group which God has prepared as vessels of mercy. Praise God. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we praise you, Lord, for the riches, both of your wisdom and knowledge, for the riches of your glory, for the riches of your grace and mercy. How unsearchable are your judgments, Lord. How unsearchable your ways past finding out the incomprehensible lengths of your love, mercy and grace to undeserving, wretched sinners like us. We praise you and thank you for this grace. We praise you and thank you for the provision that you've made in Jesus Christ for our sin. You didn't have to do that, Lord, but for the glory of your own name, uh, you determined to magnify the person and work of your son in showing grace and mercy to vessels prepared beforehand for glory. And we thank you, Lord, for that that display of your mercy and grace. Thank you, Lord, for making us the blessed beneficiaries of that grace and mercy. May it be to your everlasting praise and worship, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.